Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. I prayed what many Christians call the prayer when I was five years old. I remember it actually pretty vividly. I was kneeling next to my bed alongside my mom, and she had me kind of just repeat it right after her. It went something like this. Dear God, I'm sorry for all the bad things I've ever done. I know that Jesus came to forgive my sins by dying on the cross and coming back to life. I want him to come into my heart and to save me. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Not long after that, I was baptized at the church I grew up in by the same preacher who baptized my mom and my grandmother before me. My mom, actually, I asked her about it this week, and she told me she remembers that when they baptized me, they forgot to put the little cinder block down that kids were supposed to stand on so that the whole audience could see them, and I think she's still a little bitter about it today, but either way, it happened, cinder block or not. I went under that water, and I came back up. And after I prayed that prayer of forgiveness, and after I came up out of those baptism waters, I was given what my childhood pastor called marching orders. It kind of kept with that military theme from the old hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers, that our church loved to sing. I was now a member of the Lord's Army, and it was time that I started acting like it. Now, my marching orders were pretty straightforward. I was supposed to start having a quiet time at least 30 minutes every day where I would read the Bible and pray by myself, preferably first thing in the morning. Quiet times at night were permissible, but definitely for lesser Christians because they didn't get to start their day with it. They ended their day with it. My next marching order was to join Awanas. I don't know if you know what Awanas is, but basically it's this time on Wednesday nights where kids get together and memorize Bible verses. And when you memorize Bible verses, you actually get this little plastic crown. And every Bible verse you get, you get to put a jewel in your crown um, so that whoever has the most jewels, I don't know, wins or whatever. We got these little vests that we could put patches on, almost like a Christian version of Scouts. That was number two. And then the last thing I was supposed to join, children's choir. Now, I'm not a singer, Anybody will tell you that, especially Matt, he'll tell you that. But I was down for children's choir because every year it kicked off with a big carnival on Halloween. Now, obviously, we did not call it Halloween. We called it like Fall Festival or something like that because Halloween was for Satan worshipers. But there was a lot of candy at this festival, and I loved candy, so I was always down for children's choir. But these were my marching orders. And thus, that's what I thought being a Christian was all about. Reading my Bible, praying, memorizing scripture, singing Christian songs, and not participating in worldly activities like Halloween or Abercrombie or Harry Potter or anything that Dr. Dobson told us to boycott. Do you remember your marching orders? If you've ever had an experience like I did, praying the prayer, maybe it was walking down an aisle, maybe it was confirmation, maybe it was raising your hand at camp or getting baptized. If you've had one of those experiences, what were you told to do afterwards? What were your marching orders? Maybe your church didn't have Awanas, so maybe it was, like I said, confirmation instead. 
Maybe you didn't join children's choir because you were a little older. Maybe by that time it was all about youth group or the young adult ministry. But here's my guess. Regardless of what everything was called, your marching orders were probably pretty similar to mine. Now, aside from some boycotts that cost me a lot of candy, none of this is inherently bad stuff, right? Do I think Christians should read their Bible? Absolutely. Pray? Yes. Go to church? Yes. Memorize scripture, sing worship songs, and stand for their convictions? Yes, yes, and yes. But do I think that's all there is to being a Christian? Absolutely not. In fact, I would even say that those things aren't at the core of what it means to follow Jesus. Let me put it another way. Are those things important? Yes. Are they most important? Not even close. So what are the most important marching orders for a Christian? Well, I have some good news for us. We don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. The story we're going to look at this morning is all about people getting their marching orders. If you haven't been with us the last few weeks, we've been in this teaching series called Kingdom Come. This is our first series during our year in the life of Jesus, and it's all about the king coming to earth, the long-anticipated Messiah, Jesus, bursting onto the scene as the savior of the world. We left off last week with the only story we have of Jesus as a young man. When he was 12, he travels with Mary and Joseph to the Jerusalem uh, Passover celebration, and he actually stays a little longer than his parents anticipated back at the temple. They lose track of him. They go back. They find him, and they find him asking and answering questions alongside the brightest minds and greatest religious leaders of the day. And when they asked him what he was doing, Jesus said this profound statement, didn't you know I would be about my father's business? With that reminder of who Jesus really was and why he'd come to earth as God in the flesh, their little family traveled to Nazareth from Jerusalem. They went back home. We pick up the story back in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 52. It says, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now, this sentence is important because it actually moves the story forward for us 18 years. When we turn the page to chapter 3, Jesus is now 30 years old, and we are reintroduced to an important character from chapter 1, John the Baptist. But before that happens, Luke sets the scene as he does so well. Chapter 3, verse 1. It was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor. Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea. Herod Antipas was ruler over Galilee. His brother Philip was ruler over Eturia and Traconis. Lysanias was ruler over Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. Now, that's a lot of names, a lot of places. So modern readers usually just skip over those first few sentences. Great. There were some people. They were in charge. There were different places. Who cares? But hopefully, you and I were learning to stop doing that. Because if you've been walking through our year in the life of Jesus with us over the last few weeks, you actually know now that sentences like this are very, very important. They tell us the time and place of the story, without which it is impossible to understand the fullness of its meaning. And I'm not just talking about date and location. I'm talking about the cultural, political, and societal settings as well. Remember, about 30 years have passed since Luke last marked time and place back in chapter 1, and now we have a whole new leadership lineup, and it's a longer list this time that Luke gives us. We have a new Caesar. It's not Augustus anymore. Now it's Tiberius, 
And Tiberius is best remembered for conducting fraudulent trials against many of his political opponents, where most of them ended up being executed for treason. His final year as Caesar were so especially terror-filled that he actually was deporting Jews from Rome and continued to kill anyone who got in his way. Now, Luke also mentions Pontius Pilate, another cruel and unrelenting ruler. His reign in Judea, the area that Jerusalem was in, was marked by perversion and blackmail and extortion and frequent executions of anyone who dissented of his leadership. Pilate was famous for ridiculing the Jewish religion, even stealing money from the Jewish temple. The readers of Luke's account, and you might as well, recognize him as someone who oversaw the execution of Jesus later on. Next, Luke talks about Herod, Antipas. Now, this is Herod the Great's son, who we learn about in chapter 1. Herod Antipas ruled over Galilee to the north of Judea, and this is where Jesus grew up and spent most of his life in Nazareth. Herod Antipas built a new capital city in Galilee on top of a graveyard, which was considered horribly unclean, and the Jews were forced to go there, even against their will. Herod also had a role in the execution of Jesus, and was the one who, somewhat, sometime after this story, would actually execute John the Baptist as well. Philip and Licinius, they're a little less central to the story, but Luke includes them here to remind us that the life and work of Jesus has far-reaching effects even outside of the Jewish community into the surrounding regions in the world. But lastly, Luke mentions Annas and Caiaphas, and he calls them the high priests, plural. This is a very odd designation because there was only one high priest at a time in the Jewish temple. Luke is making a really important point that his first readers would have picked up on immediately. Annas was the high priest for nine years, and then he was followed by his five sons and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, all in succession. You see, this was Annas's way of maintaining control even after his term ended. Based on the date, we know that Caiaphas is the kind of actual or literal high priest during the time, but Luke mentions Annas and brings them together as the high priest because Annas is the power behind the throne, so to speak. As the leaders in the temple and of the entire religion, Annas and Caiaphas, these two men had total power with the Jewish people, and they would later exert that power to falsely accuse, illegally try, and murder Jesus. So why does Luke mention these seven guys here? Because they are the most powerful people in the world when Jesus begins his ministry at 30 years old. They are the, quote, rulers on the thrones, so to speak. If you recognize that language, that's because Mary used it in her song about being pregnant with Jesus back in chapter 1. She predicted that, Jesus, that through Jesus, God was going to turn the world order upside down. Remember, chapter 1, verse 41, here, 51, here is what she says. He, that's God, has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. But he has lifted up the humble. You see, Luke's readers, both then and now, know that Tiberius, Pilate, Herod, Annas, and Caiaphas all go on to have a role in the killing of Jesus. Luke spends these two verses reminding his first audience of the fact that all of these men, 
even though they were powerful, even though they were in charge, even though they were cruel and mean and ended up killing John the Baptist and Jesus, they were all eventually brought down from their thrones. They were scattered, as Mary predicted. But the humble Savior, Jesus Christ, was resurrected from the death, lifted up to the highest place. You see, this passage is meant to remind Luke's readers who are still dealing with prideful rulers and significant evil in their world that Jesus is still at work. And it reminds us of the same thing. Even as we see prideful leaders and serious evil all over our world, we can find hope in the fact that they are only temporary. Jesus is always working to humble the proud and to bring down harmful rulers from their throne. He is always on the side of the oppressed. Now that the scene has been set, Luke reintroduces us to the central character in today's story. The last time we read about him was back in chapter one, right after he was born. Here's what Luke's talking about. Verse three, the word of the Lord came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Then John went from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River, preaching that people should be baptized to show they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. Isaiah had spoken of John when he said, he is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. The valleys will be filled and the mountains and hills made level. The curves will be straightened and the rough places made smooth. And then all people, we'll see the salvation sent from God. So Luke reintroduces John the Baptist, and we were reminded of his miraculous birth. He is the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. If you remember, they were the infertile couple who had all but given up on having kids because of their old age. Luke also tells us that John is now fulfilling what the angel Gabriel predicted about him back in chapter 1. He said, He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That was John's job, to prepare people for the coming Messiah. Now that phrase, the word of the Lord came to John, immediately establishes John the Baptist as a prophet on the same level as guys like Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and other Hebrew prophets of old because the exact same phrase was used of them throughout the Old Testament. We also notice that Luke's quote from Isaiah 40 is a clear statement that Jesus is, in fact, the promised Messiah. He is the salvation sent from God, as that last line says. But it's important to note, he isn't just the salvation for the Jewish people, as many of them thought at the time. Jesus is salvation for all people, for everyone He brings salvation to them no matter who they are or what they've done. So the prophet John is preparing the way for the salvation-bearing Messiah Jesus by going from place to place and preaching that people should repent of their sins, ask God's forgiveness, and then be baptized. Now, if you have some church background, that sequence of events is probably somewhat familiar to you. In fact, if you've ever prayed one of those prayers we talked about earlier, chances are it was a prayer of repentance and forgiveness like mine. And you probably were even baptized afterwards. You see, this is not new. We didn't make it up. It's been a part of a faith tradition from the very beginning. John was kind of the forerunner of this practice, preaching and then walking people through the process of repenting, asking for forgiveness, and then being baptized. And Luke actually gives us a glimpse of the sermon that John was preaching that day. 
verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized him, you brood of vipers. It's a good way to start a sermon right there. I'm going to start doing that. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children from Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Wow, kind of harsh, huh? Calling people snakes, telling them they're going to be thrown into the fire. It doesn't really seem like the best strategy for kind of getting your baptism numbers up, does it? Well, John isn't concerned with his numbers. John is concerned with people treating Jesus the Messiah the same way that they had been treating Judaism. You see, many Jewish folks back then, they placed their faith in their national identity rather than in God. They would often do whatever they wanted to do, totally ignoring the instructions of God and then say, oh, we'll be fine, right? We're God's chosen people. We're descended from Abraham, God made a covenant with Abraham to bless it. God's not going to break his promises, so it doesn't really matter how we act. We can do whatever we want. This is an important reminder for us Christians in America today as well. You see, many of us totally ignore the teachings of Jesus and then say, oh, we'll be fine. We're a Christian nation. Our founding fathers, they they built this country on Judeo-Christian values, right? So everything in America, everything American must be what God wants. But that's not true. It wasn't true for the Jewish people then, and it's not true for Americans now. And John is calling that out for the lie that it is. He says it doesn't matter who you are descended from. It doesn't matter what country you were born in. You are responsible for following God. He tells them that they were never meant to hoard God's blessings. They were meant to share them with others. He says it's not baptism that matters. It's producing good fruit that matters. If he was talking to us today, I'd imagine John would say something like this. It doesn't matter what country you live in. It doesn't matter what family you were born into. You are responsible for your actions. It's not about praying a prayer or walking down an aisle. It's about following Jesus. So what are we supposed to do? What does this really look like practically? Well, the people that day asked John the very same thing. Verse 10, what should we do then? The crowd asked. John preaches this sermon. He comes at him a little hot, right? I'm thinking they're thinking probably this is a little intense, John, but we can tell you're passionate about it. We can tell you're serious about it. So tell us what we should do. What should we do? And John doesn't hesitate. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked, and what should we do? He replied, don't exhort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. There they are. Those are the marching orders for these newly baptized people. He said, what do we do? John doesn't say, go read scripture. He doesn't say, sign up for my Wednesday night Bible study out here in the wilderness. We've got locusts, we've got honey, bring your friends, it's going to be great. He doesn't tell them to go to the temple more often. He sends them back to their normal lives, but in a completely abnormal way. 
He says, here are your marching orders. If you have extra, share with others who don't. If you're a tax collector, don't collect more than is required of you. Now, this was a big deal because every tax collector took more than required. That's how they made most of their money. You see, Rome paid them to collect taxes from the Jewish people and then basically told them they could keep whatever they wanted above and beyond what they had to give to Rome. So that's how they actually made their money. He says, stop doing that. Treat people fairly. Only collect what you're required to. He says, if you're a soldier, don't exhort money from or accuse people falsely. Now, this sounds odd to us because we think of soldiers as kind of fighting on the other side of the world, but these were not like frontline soldiers. Those guys were out fighting battles, conquering new territory for the Roman Empire. These guys were more like military police who kept the peace in Rome and in various places. They gained power and made money by accusing people falsely and extorting them, making them pay unjust fines. John tells these folks, stop. Don't act like you acted before. You are different now. Your lives should be different too. Now, this is a profound message. So profound, in fact, the people start wondering if John is actually the Messiah. Verse 15. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. But John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John ex- exhorted, the people and proclaim the good news to them. John tells them, I'm not the Messiah. I can't even untie his sandals, but he's coming soon and he's going to be incredible. And John again uses that metaphor of things being cut down and burned. This is John telling the Israelites that their relationship with God was never special because they were special. God blessed them so they would bless the whole world, but time and time again, they didn't do that. So God allowed them to go their own way toward pain and struggle. This would come true again, John's predicting, about 40 years later when Jerusalem and the temple are all destroyed. But apparently, John's rebuke wasn't just reserved for the people of Israel. He was also speaking truth to power in the Roman world, verse 19. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. John is not stopping with just the people in the wilderness that are with him. He calls out Herod, the ruler of the time that we just learned about for using his power to hurt others. So Herod locks him up. And as I said earlier, eventually kills him for speaking out. But not before the man himself, Jesus, shows up in our story this morning. Verse 21. When all the people were baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. This is a really cool little passage for uh, a number of reasons. First, it's the first time that we see the Trinity all together. It's actually the only time we see the Trinity all together. God the Father speaking a blessing over God the Son as God the Holy Spirit descends down. Second, It's important because this is the first kind of public moment for Jesus as an adult. He is being crowned king of this new kingdom, the Messiah. 
the savior of the whole world. But lastly, this passage is important because Jesus is affirming the message that John just finished preaching by coming to him for baptism, just like everyone else was coming to him for baptism. You see, Jesus didn't need to repent. He didn't have anything to repent of. He didn't need to ask for forgiveness. He's the only one ever to not need to ask for forgiveness, by the way. And he doesn't. So why does he come to John for baptism that day? Because he is picking up the torch, carrying forward John's message in a spectacular way. Remember, John was the one to prepare the way. Now it's Jesus' turn to take it farther. So I want to end this morning by going back to that message because I think it is so vitally important for us. This message is one and the same with the marching orders I was talking about earlier. Those folks came up out of the baptism waters and they asked, what do I do now? And here's what John told them. Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. Anyone who has food should do the same. Tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then soldiers asked him, what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. There they are. There are the marching orders. And I would argue not just for the people who came up out of the baptism waters that day, but there for anyone and everyone who wants to follow Jesus. So I want to make this very practical for us today. When we boil it all down, John is telling us to do two things here. Number one, if you have extra, share with those who don't. If you have extra, share with those who don't. Extra shirts, extra food, extra time, extra shelter, extra money, extra anything. If you have extra, share with people who don't. If we have extra, that's our marching orders. We are to share it with people who don't. Number two, if you have power, use it to help those who don't. If you are in a position of power, whether that's because of your age or race or gender or sexual orientation or socioeconomic status or career path or anything else, use that power to help people who have less power than you. If you have power, use it to help those who don't, like the tax collector, like the soldier. This is John's message. I love New Testament scholar and professor Joel Green. He says it like this in his commentary on the book of Luke. John is thus situated squarely in the midst of social turmoil with profound economic, political, and religious implications. Indeed, the prophetic movements with which he shares affinity were themselves concerned with the quest for deliverance from oppression. According to Luke, John's baptism was intimately tied up with repentance and must give rise to behaviors that demonstrate repentance. The examples of behavior growing out of repentance are concerned with social justice. Like Dr. Green says, these acts of repentance concerned with social justice aren't just our arching, marching orders. John explicitly teaches that they are the evidence that we have truly been transformed by Jesus. He calls it the fruit in keeping with repentance. Jesus said, they will know you by your fruit. This is part of that. This is the fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, I want to be clear right here. 
Social justice is not the means by which we are saved. Scripture consistently teaches that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But John makes it clear in this passage, as does Jesus throughout his ministry, that social justice is not only the natural outflow of salvation, it is the primary indication of it as well. This is what Christ followers do simply and profoundly. If we have extra, we share it with those who don't. If we have power, we use it to help those who don't. As James, the brother of Jesus, says in his letter to the early church, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. We have our marching orders. We know what we are called to do as followers of Jesus. It's not easy, but it's simple. If you have extra, share it with those who don't. If you have power, use it to help those who don't. Now, before I wrap up, I want to say one more really important thing. When John told these newly baptized folks what to do, it wasn't just for the benefit of those around them. It was for their benefit too. You see, the one with extra gains as much from giving it away as the one receiving it. This is so hard for us to understand because of how our society works. We think that it's a sacrifice for the tax collector to not have as much money or the military police to give up some of their power, but it doesn't work like that. You see, the kingdom of God is not a zero-sum game where if I give something away, I have less and they have more. Whether we have extra or not, whether we have power or not, we are all caught up in the same broken, sinful system. A system that slowly but surely erases all of our God-given dignity and design. You see, when the tax collector steals, everyone's humanity is diminished. The victim loses their money, yes, but the tax collector loses something too. When we use our power to harm a fellow human, we don't just tarnish the image of God in them, we tarnish the image of God in ourselves as well. Remember, this radical kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate is good news of great joy for all people, all people. Like Lisa Sharon Harper says, it sets both the slave and the slave master free. It delivers both the oppressed and the oppressor. So if you have extra, share with those who don't. If you have power, Use it to help those who don't. These are our marching orders as followers of Jesus. Let's spend the rest of our lives carrying them out together. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for this beautiful story. I thank you for the life and legacy of John the Baptist. What an incredible person. Someone who was not afraid to speak truth even when it cost him dearly was not afraid to point out the issues of the powerful even when they would eventually kill him for it. 
God, thank you that he wasn't all concerned with his numbers or his appearance or what people thought of him. God, he was concerned with you speaking your truth. And he was concerned with people who were hurting and struggling, both the oppressed and the oppressor, God. That he wanted to set people free from the bondage that sin and evil so often entangles us in. God, thank you for the clarity of his words. Thank you that he didn't beat around the bush when those people came up out of the water and said, what should we do? I pray that we would take it seriously too, just like they did. That we would live our lives marked by these marching orders. That we would carry out, God, your will in our world, that your kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven, that if we have extra, we would share with those who don't, and if we have power, we would use it to help those who don't. God, and that all of us would become a little bit more human, a little bit clearer of image bearers of you as we do. God, help us to strip off the, the sin and the junk that so easily entangles us. Help us to move past allegiances to earthly kings and kingdoms and place our faith and our trust in your kingdom and Jesus as our king. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.